0: Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center, joined as usual with Nastasia, The Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Back from uh, wherever you were last time. Was it last week you were away? No, you were away. Oh, I was uh, was at Harvard, doing the Harvard thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. If it comes up, it comes up. Joined as usual in the studio with Joe Hazen. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing all right. Uh, We got Jackie Molecule still in Mexico. What's up?
1: Still, Mexico, recovering
0: from uh, my meat bucket meal. Oh yeah. So uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I told uh, Jack that he needed to go. What's the actual name of the meat bucket place? Oh, uh, I
1: can't pronounce it. I have to look it up. But we should just continue to call it meat bucket.
0: We'll call it meat bucket. But we got to you. You put it on the Patreon, uh, like exactly where it is, right? You geotagged it. So it's this place in Mexico City. Yeah, we'll do that. Now. Where and it's where they have this like uh, like a giant like uh, I guess. What is, it? what is that, a rondo? Big, big bigger, big, large, right? Uh, full of some bubbling meat liquid, which is it's unclear. Uh, what percentage oil and what percentage uh, water based liquid would you say that is, Jack?
1: It had to be more on the oil side.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then just like uh, uh, all the meat, like all the meats, all of, it. all of them, like just sitting there. You, well, there had to be some broth in it because it did bubble. Right, so we know it wasn't strictly speaking oil because it also wasn't hot enough to dehydrate it. So it wasn't like a. Remember back in the day, Nastasia uh, used to spend her summers in. Oh, I, I, I'm talking to someone I haven't introduced him yet. Our special guest today on the show is Dorothy Kalins, who is the founder of uh, Savore magazine. Way back uh, in uh, the, what was it, 1993 or Four, 1994, mm-hmm. which was an, um, and, and all, then after Savore went to Newsweek for a while, and as you put it, uh, saw that. Uh, through, uh, what was it, 9-11 and two wars, decided to get back to food, and uh, since has become a, uh, a producer of cookbooks, which we'll talk about, but is here today to talk about her new book, which is actually, I read somewhere, which is kind of unbelievable. Is this really the first book that you've done under just yourself with, with no one else or no?
2: very first, and it may be the last. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, writing books does suck. Uh, the Kitchen Whisperers. Cooking with the wisdom of uh, our friends. All right, so, uh, and it, by the way, so uh, if you're listening live on Patreon, call in your questions uh, for Dorothy to 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. But back to meat buckets. So uh, it's this, it's this like bubbling cauldron with all these kinds of meats in it. But then it, you just order what type of meat and they pull it all out of they this. They pull that chunk out. Correct. Yeah, hack it up. And then they, they dip their... Now their tortilla game is not the best tortilla game in town. I mean, come on, because it's Mexican. No, City. that's true. Please, but again, you know, uh, not everyone can have all the skills, right? And so then they they, they dip oh, the tortilla yeah. into into the bubbling liquid and then put your 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 uh, hashed meat onto it. Uh, yeah. So was it uh, was it everything you'd hope for?
1: I had my first tacos de ojo. I eyeball tacos.
0: Oh, oh, god, that sounds unpleasant. Mm. Was, so it, it was it? Was why would you go for the? Why, so we, just go for the delicious? Don't go for the freak meat. I tried most of them. I tried most of them. You know, I'm a completionist. Dorothy, you ever had any freak meat that you like, or do you? Or, or no? I mean, I like awful, right? You like you, you? Yeah, yeah, sure. But like yeah. sweetbreads. Yeah. Oh, those yeah. are great. You know, when done well. Do you like yes. them when they're super Bonneau. gooey, or do you like a little crunch on the outside? Of your sweetbreads. Oh, bread? I
2: like crunch. Yeah, yeah. Always crunch.
0: Yeah. I've never been huge on like just straight braised sweetbread things. Just pile mm-hmm. of goo. Not mm-hmm. my thing. Right. You know,
2: texture-wise. Although brains are pretty good.
0: Do you still eat... Brains, they have brain yeah. taco at, yeah. at this meat bucket place. Uh-huh. So you can get it. And someone hit it It's to not me.
2: in the pot with the rest of the stuff. I
0: don't know what they do with it. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but... No, uh, that's
1: correct. That's correct. It's yeah. not in the pot with the rest of the stuff. They pull that separately. That's
0: I don't right. eat brains anymore. Ever
2: since the Mad Cow... Do you still eat brains? Rarely, but I wouldn't turn it down in a good place.
0: Now, do you eat brains? Do you like your brains, Like, like egg style like cooked in with eggs or are you like just like cuz i believe in the tacos the ones i had it was just like like a like a like a tranche like like brain it's like ugh. yeah
2: the it's texture a lot. is yeah the texture has to be played off against something
0: yeah yeah better crispier yeah but so like so in 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 a game of marrow versus brains what do you go for
2: oh you know there's something fabulous about a roasted marrow bone yes that is delicious really? great yeah yeah haven't had that in in years you have to you have to ask your butcher to slice them in half and then season them and broil them oh man
0: that's great i've never do you ever used to eat the marrow stuff size you're marrow what about you joe you a marrow guy no come on what about like uh you're italian did you did your family did you grow up with asabuco Oh, we do asabuco, cool. yeah, of course. Did you pop the marrow out of the asabuco? That's what your pinky was made for.
1: I have done <laughs> it a few times. Don't love it. <clears throat> the other side of my family is Jewish. We don't eat innards, don't mm-hmm. eat brains, don't eat any right. bone, anything like that. Right. No.
0: Yeah, yeah. I grew up, you know, you chew the ends off the chicken bones, you pop the marrow out of the asabuco, but for some reason my mom, maybe once or twice she did, she never made, she never, we never did the split marrow bone with, the, with like the parsley on top and... All of that. Yeah,
2: that's the one to
0: do. Yeah. <clears throat> I, had, I remember the first time I was served super fancy where the – like, like a, uh, at a Michelin three-star where in France, where my wife and I couldn't afford it, but we went there anyway. Yeah, you ever been to uh, Pre-Catalan in the Bois de Boulogne?
2: No, uh, but I know of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, whatever. We didn't know. We were real young. It was like super stuffy at the time. We didn't have the money, and we didn't realize that this is like where the hookers go to hang out. Right, the Bois de Boulogne. So, like, and we didn't have money. There was no cell phones, and there was no, uh, no, no taxis, and we didn't speak French. And so, we got lost in the Bois de Boulogne, and we were super late for for dinner and sweaty because we were running around trying to find it, asking all of these French hookers in broken French how to get to this three star Michelin restaurant. It's quite an experience. Great meal though. Great meal. They had all the. Uh do you appreciate goofy goofy French like serving clothing? Like all of the weird like special clothing the, the and all those. Yeah. Whatever
2: and the, the dish towels tucked into the waist. Yeah. You like that stuff? I do. I, I do too that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you prefer French service or Italian service?
2: At this moment I would take any kind of service. <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: all right, all right. So how about this, Nastasia, since well we we'll do the questions later on. The, We'll bang them all out. Yeah. So and you know we'll get Dorothy to weigh in. And once she, you know she's more used to the tangents that we're gonna. Yes. I'm well, inevi- inevitably going to go on uh, throughout this thing. Okay, so let's go back to the book, the new book, the Kitchen Whispers. So it's it's interesting because and the, and again the uh, what, what is this called again a slug line is that slug what what do you call that thing it's, afterwards
2: It's kind of a, it's a subtitle subtitle Yeah.
0: So it's cooking with the wisdom of uh, our friends. So not necessarily by the way. Like a lot of people talk about, you know, the wisdom of, of your ancestors. And while there are some people from, you know, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, it's really a lot about like, friends, like people who are, you know, your age, younger than you, older than you. But not. it's not about necessarily handed down wisdom. It's about shared wisdom, right? That's,
2: that's right. And actually, the, the subtitle I wanted on the book was Cooking with the Voices on Our Heads. Because that's really the experience that I have, which is when I'm alone in the kitchen, I hear people telling me to do things or suggesting or whatever. But the publisher thought that that might sound like I was a crazy person, so <laughs> we had to we did cooking with the wisdom of our friends. But basically, I think that we all, when we are in the kitchen, are listening to where where do we go next where do we take this ingredient next how do we do this thing you know what 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 am, you know and i have a constant dialogue and i'm so lucky that i've got a lot of people who are whispering to me
0: well that's, well yeah i mean you've known quite a few kind of amazing amazing cooks and so the the thing about it is it's it's not chronologically oriented or chronologically um, organized i should say but it's uh you it, it does end up reading somewhat like a memoir because you can trace the kind of history of what you were doing through the people you choose and the stories that you tell about them.
2: That's exactly right. Right.
0: So it's and so it's an interesting story. Let's so let's talk about let's talk about this uh story. So Savour, and and even though this is not in the book, I I I can't help myself. So for those, of, I would guess m- most of our listeners. How old would you say they are? Stop, like, uh,
2: they're between twenty five and forty five.
0: Okay, so they mm-hmm. don't know necessarily what it was like to be a cook coming of age in the early nineties, and uh, so that's my like you you hit my prime sweet spot. I'm fifty now, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, for for people who grew up. And kind of were, you know, in the basement reading the, you know, in my case, my mom's cookbooks, you know what I mean, uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, then in the, in the ninety you know, in the early, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, you just had this kind of breakthrough. Uh, food was, don't let anyone tell you different, food was bad in the U.S. I mean, it really was. It was not good. You know what I mean? There were good, great cooks. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Great. There yeah. were there were great cooks, there were old style cooks, French trained, Italian trained, whatever, classically trained, but there were also beginning to be a new generation of American cooks, and that was the thing that we were excited about. Um, even at Met Home, which I was the editor of before we did Sever, we traced that that burgeoning American cook. and you know, Think about Alice Waters. Think about Jonathan Waxman. Think about um, Larry Forgione, um, Wolfgang Puck, all those people. I mean, Wolf, Wolf was not American originally, but basically they were interested in dealing with American gr- ingredients, American traditions. Let's not try to be the French chefs. Let's not try to be the Italian. Let's make our food. Yeah, exactly. And
0: I think someone now can't, Possibly imagine how focused Americans were on other people's food instead of our own. They can't imagine it. Perfectly said. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, going back to that time, so just before, maybe, maybe, I forget exactly what year it was. Do you remember when Julia Child did uh, Cooking with Master Chefs, where mm-hmm. she got a bunch of young, like, and then she put them all on her television mm-hmm. show? That was kind of. That was an early, I think for me, you know, an East Coast uh, kind of sign that, oh, there's this whole group of other people. Now, a lot of them were doing Frenchie style stuff, but some of them weren't like Emeril and, you know, who was first made famous in that. But so 1993 and 94, within that span of two years, two very different publications came out that both like incredibly altered the landscape of food thought. Yours and uh, Cook's Illustrated, Mm -hmm. and uh, I just, you know, they seem so diametrically opposed in their mental attitude about um, kind of what's going on, they seem so like kind of diametrically opposed about uh, what's going on, but over the years, have you found that the two attitudes have both woven their
2: their way in in kind of an interesting way into kind of American food culture? I think so. That's a that it's a very good thing. I mean, the Cooks Illustrated was a real book, a real magazine about cooking, and techniques and recipes. And it wasn't filtered down through an Italian chef or a, a French cook or 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 even a, a Mexican one. It was really what what to American people what are they going to cook? And that was, that was a good magazine then. And as for Sever, our, our point of view was <sighs> there's so much fakery going on in food. There's, you know Our great example was low-fat cassoulet. Well, who wants to have low-fat cassoulet? If you're going to do it, do it once and do it right. So you honor the place, the ingredients, the, 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 the experience. And we... We, one of the great surprises for me when we, we launched that magazine was how many chefs loved Sever. And they loved it because they, they told me there were holes in their um, practical knowledge and their restaurant experience that didn't tell them, for example, where, where does saffron come from? How, how, do, you know, how do those little, the, wait, they're the, the center of the steeples of, of crocuses? Nobody knew that. And and that was interesting to us. I'm not saying nobody knew that. Well, but there's, remember there's no
0: internet either.
2: Right. there's no th- there was I mean there was only you'd ha- you'd have to bo- read a book.
0: Yeah, you or you'd have to go to a library and get right. a book, which is <laughs> again, people don't people can't possibly imagine how What it
2: was like in we, those old yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, like
0: like I still when I I can still smell the library. Like when I like and I think about it like the smell of those musty books. I love it. You yeah. know what I mean. But that's gone forever. And you know, the internet's fantastic. I love it. I use it all yeah. the time. But like, I, I love the I love the library. Yeah. So there was not a way for someone to know. But so you were pointing people towards these things that, in truth, were completely lost here on most on most people. Right. Ninety nine percent of people, unless you could travel yeah. a lot. And my God, reading this, you guys traveled a lot. How did you get we the did. budget to do this stuff?
2: Well, we we it was. Hooker by crook. We didn't, we had a very small staff and we paid very mid level wages. And we, it was the experience of working there that mattered to all of us. And we managed, we managed to travel because we traveled very light. There was only, sometimes there was only a writer and a photographer to produce a story. And the stories could be eight or 10 or 12 pages long. Because they went deep into something and they gave you the experience of being there and understanding it. I mean, we really believe profoundly that where you grew up, wherever in the world it was, you used those ingredients for a reason, and that cuisine came out of those ingredients and the practices, and we, need, we wanted to know it. We were starving for it. We were hungry for it. But, you know, you couldn't do that magazine now. We've all agreed that the, my co-founders and I, you couldn't do stuff because there's so much going on in the world and there's so much, everybody knows Everybody knows everything now. And you
0: can,
2: or they think they do. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, everyone knows a tiny bit about a lot. Yeah. Which, of course, that was my whole skill set growing up. Knowing a tiny bit about a lot. I was that guy. I knew yeah. a tiny bit about a lot. Now that everyone does, I you know, I'm just I'm no one anymore, right, Stas? So <laughs> it's over. It's over. It's gone. Um so an interesting one of the interesting things you you bring up here, um a, again, it, it's now very uh fun to go and look at old food photography, magazine food photography, because of the weird stilted imagery and the way everything looks. And you you Talk about having to because you were in magazines. You didn't just start Savour one day. You 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 were working uh, as an uh, editor at uh, Met, Met Home. Home. You start mm-hmm. you started that one right. I
2: started it and I was editor for for eleven years. Yeah. Right, yeah, and then and what? Where were you before that? I was a freelance journalist. Yeah. yeah. So in other words,
0: like you're well steeped in this kind of like eighties like eighties food journalism. Uh, you know, and photography, and you're saying that they were shooting everything on eight tens. Well, oh, by the way, cr- people don't know. Describe yeah, this. You don't even it, know what it is. Yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, it, it it's 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 a person. <laughs> it's big as a person. It has a head that's bigger than any of ours or all three of ours put together. And it you had to look upside down under a black cloth at the food that was set up on a table. That was how I came into food photography. And anything we could do to run as fast as we could away from that kind of, because what it does is it it makes it fake. Yeah. It's not real. And, and and, And part of the problem of food in America was that it was all so twirled up, so painted and propped and messed with, and it never looked like anything you cooked. Yeah. So the first thing we did when we started Savera was we had a kitchen. We were lucky enough to have a, a offices in Soho, and we had a big table and a, the kitchen was right next door. And we would come out and it was a big room full of lots and lots of available light. And that's how we shot our food, just cooked,
0: available light. And in the in the early '90s, they said this wasn't, it wasn't a thing. You know, I I uh, I remember even in. Well, late 90s, like after, you know, you, you kind of made this style uh, more popular, it was still, you know, uh, I, Food and Wine did a shoot at, at my uh, loft and uh, they were for uh, fried chicken because every, every Sunday we would have family dinner and I would cook a bunch of fried chicken and all right. this stuff. And um, years, years. I still make fried chicken. The, um, and they were like, oh, we're going to uh, get a photographer who likes to work with natural light. I was like, ooh.
2: Ooh. Brain <laughs> surgery.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I only once, I used to have to, you know, everyone has to make money. I'm not very, particularly good at it, but I did a couple of food styling jobs back in the day. And I once had to do one for one of those old school cameras. Very famous photographer. Not. I can never remember which is which. Which is the movie maker and which one is the uh, photographer, but Penn. They're both dead now, I think. Mm-hmm. Was
2: it Arthur Penn was the photographer? Arthur Penn was the movie So his brother. Director Irving Penn Irving, was, yeah. the, was the was the photographer and Irving Penn, everything about his his pictures was was predetermined. And- oh, yeah.
0: All day, one yeah. shot. You were not allowed to speak to him. And it was a giant. I want to know how you left.
2: make your, your fried chicken.
0: Uh, well, it's an interesting question. So uh, my fried chicken, fried chicken is all about how, you know, kind of what you're trying to achieve. I don't believe in perfection. Uh, I, I, you know, I believe that there is a particular goal that you're looking for. Um, I do, I brine mine, uh, I brine it actually in milk, not in buttermilk. Not in buttermilk. Well, the reason is, is, um, I think it, it, the the acidity and look, if you're going to cook it really hard, then, uh, buttermilk is good because the, the acid will kind of, uh, soften the chicken flesh. Mm-hmm. But if you're not going to take the extra step of overcooking the chicken, I find that buttermilk soak can make it a little bit soft. Um, I don't yeah, yeah. So I, I do, and I don't even know if water would be the same as milk. I just, I've always used milk for 30 years, 40 years, you know, whatever. I've used yeah. milk. So I, I use milk, salt, milk, salt, sugar, sugar, basically as the, as the soak. And then... Uh, Overnight brine? Uh, well, so if I, if I need to make it faster, I will just increase the salt and sugar content and cheat a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, then, then uh again, I haven't test because this is the way I grew up, like old school, dry them out on racks, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for a couple of hours. Then I do flour, then uh, buttermilk, egg, uh, soda, buttermilk, buttermilk, egg, salt, pepper, soda, powder. Then, you know, back into the flour again and then, and then fry. That's it, the reason it, the reason I do dry, yeah. wet is because I, I don't like to work with uh, batter-based chicken just because it's too complicated. It's not bulletproof. If you Mm. don't get the viscosity of a batter just right, Mm. it either slips off, it's too
2: thick. Oh, yeah, that's an awful thing when it slips off into the pan and you think...
0: Oh, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, uh, you're familiar with... um, uh, Willie May Scotch House in New Orleans. Oh, absolutely. So I had the great pleasure a couple of years ago back when, uh, you know, traveling was a a thing of eating at Dookie Chase's and Willie Mays in one day. One day. I had both their fried chickens one day. Fabulous. Uh, And so, you know, Willie May Scotch House is uh, an all-batter situation with no pre-dust. Now, I've got some people on the air, some friends of mine, I won't call them out, who I, I had researching this because... It's incredibly difficult if you don't make uh, chicken every day to 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 get an all batter um, recipe to work, especially with no pre dust. Mm-hmm. It's just very hard to get it to stick. To get it to stick, mm-hmm. the viscosity mm-hmm. has to be dead on mm-hmm. every time. So, mm-hmm. like one of the theories is, and I've seen videos of them doing it. They never got the recipe, of course, right? I think they're using a um, they're using a high acid. I think marinade. Uh, just to stop. So, like, you know, one of the things that I, I do that's odd in mine, and I saw you raise your eyebrows a little bit, I put soda in. So, butter, buttermilk is good in, a, in, a, in an outside batter because um, if your batter or your breading is slightly acidic, it won't brown as much in the long cooking of, mm-hmm. uh, of frying as if you had a baking soda. But I don't know, I just always put
2: baking soda in.
0: And, but if I'm gonna do a super long fry, sometimes I'll scale it back so mm-hmm. that it's still slightly acidic. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, you're
2: always feeling the fingertips at work yeah yeah
0: yeah. but anyway i can't get that and so i'm writing a book now which you know late and in my fry thing i'm going to be like listen i've worked a lot on trying to figure out this batter only thing but i just don't think it's it's worth it because if you're not going to fry every day you're not going to get that in your bones this year's not
2: going to get it in your bones so great i i love that i love that's exactly the way cooking should be is that you feel it in your bones if you're lucky enough
0: yeah, I was speaking with somebody uh texted me. I haven't had a chance to look at the video yet. Made the leg balls. I'm going to look at your video and, and we'll talk about it uh next next week. Uh so I I do my What was it? Uh I I have it here in, in the thing. Uh, so like uh, people in my family, I won't call them out because they get mad when I call them out. Uh don't like to eat meat on bones. Well, by the way, uh interesting in your book you mentioned bring the rabbit back. Mm-hmm. You have a, a like a little couple paragraphs couple graphs yes. on bringing yes. the yes. rabbit back. Yes. I think so. You, you speculate, or maybe it's the person you're talking with. I can't remember. Speculates that uh, rabbits are pets, and that's why we don't eat them. I think it's the tiny bones. Oh, you do. I mean, maybe it's a combination of the of the of the bones and the.
2: Yeah, I don't think people have the experience of eating it, and that and that's the barrier to entry. That was David Tannis. That, oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. You know, is a great rabbit cook. Never had his food. Oh, best yeah. because. He's he's a chef, but he's not a chef. He's a cook. So, rabbit,
0: you don't you think it's just the kind of what do you guys think? Pet or bones? Some combination? Just we don't eat it. What? Bones. Bones. Joe, what is your feeling? I I think it has to do with the bones as well. But I love a rabbit ragu. Yeah, love it. Hmm. A lot of good Italian rabbit dishes. Yeah, wonderful. You know what my yeah. issue also uh, like. Uh, <sighs> rabbits dry out when you overcook them. They really really do. Now if you're going to shred it and have like a sauce, then who cares whether you've it overcooked doesn't it. Matter. it yeah. th- but like, you know, I don't know, like the the again as as someone who uh, my age, right? I'm in that that kind of demographic where we all were aspiring to serve kind of these unadorned <laughs> kind of like there there was an anti-sauce period. You yeah, know what I mean? That's right.
2: There was a, a purist. Well, it was that I think much of the French and Italian cooking that we knew as as really cooking was sauce-based. Right, right, right. So we wanted to do the o- opposite. Yeah.
0: Right. And so, you know, and so then you know, those kinds of meats are hard to do unadorned, mm-hmm. I would say. Yes. You know, cuz if you're just gnawing on it's a It's not a uh, yeah. throw
2: a rabbit on the grill kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Right. You have, to, you have to really work with it a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh,
0: hey, speaking of sauces, do you remember when uh, Peterson's sauce book came out? It was it Peterson, right? Was that his name? His name just went out of my head. Oh my God. I was just thinking about how we were anti-sauce for a while, and then this magnificent sauce book from 1990? 1990. Anyway, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay. I'll get to it later. My brain will come back. Okay, so. Let's talk about what do you want to what do what do you, you want to talk about? Here's what I want to ask you about. Okay. Uh, after you left uh, Savour, um, and then you went to Newsweek for a while and right. talked about that a little bit. Then you started doing what you call in the book and even in your thing on the back, producing cookbooks. Now it's mm-hmm. an interesting way to think about it. The production of and your you know your husband, as you mentioned here, is a filmmaker. So you seem like you know production in the blood here. So.
2: You know what? It really was treating the work of a chef like I was making a magazine about it. What size was this book? What was the feel that I wanted readers to get from it? How much, of how much, how to could you put into it? How much, how helpful should it be? And how beautiful should it be? And it's always the balance, the balance of those things. So for me... Producing a cookbook was just like producing a magazine. You decided on the size of it. You decided on who the photographer would be. You'd work with, with the photographer and the chef, the cook, with everything that there was, every, every chapter, every idea. And then and I wrote them with the, with the person who was the, was the chef. And so it was, a, it was like a magazine. But when you're gonna and I did the layout with um, I was I'm so lucky to have a wonderful art director who I've worked with actually on Met Home and we we've produced books together and often he's on the shoot with with me and we're deciding oh that could be a great spread so all of a sudden which is means a picture that goes across two pages you're 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 controlling it from the very beginning right. That's got to be
0: a huge investment for you to choose someone to do that with, yeah. So how do you find the people that you're going to do this kind of thing with? And and, and they a lot of them show up in in the book, obviously. Yes.
2: Yeah. I've been a very lucky girl. I've been uh, I've been able to after I left magazines, and I don't ever feel like I want to leave magazines because magazines are dear to my heart. You picked a good time um, to leave magazines. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> The the um, I I was put together um, with Michael Anthony, for example, who's the, the executive chef at Gramercy Tavern. And by the way, just a sweetheart. The, uh, couldn't be a, a finer person. And I said to Michael, "Well, this is we sold that book. I have a, a wonderful agent, David Black, who just sees the potential in things. Shark, he's, that he's, guy. He's, he's wonderful. A shark. He he is a lovely human being." <laughs> I owe a lot to David.
0: Um, if you want a go her, if, you, if, you, if you're a cookbook writer and you want someone to eviscerate the, uh, the publisher to get the advance, he's a good guy, right? Well, it's not,
2: it's not really that because that, that publisher is going to pretty much know, have a range that they're going to give the advance to. But at any rate, so, so, so when I did the Gramercy Tavern book, um, the first thing I knew people would want was, the, was to be able to cook the recipes. So we uh, immediately eliminated everything that demanded a stratospheric skill in the kitchen because it's just ridiculous to try to even put that in a cookbook. Now there's some some things there are things that recipes that vary in in skill necessity, but we explained everything. We explained how to do pickles.
0: Yeah, you bring that up in your book, actually. Wasn't
2: that? I loved that. I mean, Michael taught me that. It, It was. Uh, it was an it opened doors for me,
0: but it was also, I mean, again, and I don't know how much people who don't live in this world will understand this, but you um you when you write about it, you seem almost surprised yourself that here is something that he was actually doing in the restaurant that also works well for a different reason for a home cook. And so if, I could see almost a light bulb going off in your head as I'm reading you, like talking about that because, there, and I am going through that with my book that I am writing now. There, are, there are certain things that strangely work for both, mm-hmm. not necessarily for the same reason, mm-hmm. and so it seemed to kind of jump out at me with that when reading that thing, is that do you do you feel those kind of moments? When
2: Absolutely, I am for the reader, and I think that's what an editor really has to be. I am I'm also for Michael and and the other wonderful chefs I, I get to work with, and I want to make sure that their ideas are clearly and. um importantly transported to to a reader but basically no no you're not going to ask a, a home cook to do a certain number of things that's why you go to a restaurant like gramercy for example so and i knew gramercy needed to have the, the gramercy tavern book needed to have a lot of the glory that is the space of that restaurant and i interviewed the architect. Right, you talk about that. And and how he you know, how he thought that through and how he and Danny Meyer decided that it was gonna be like um Italian country inns inside, even though it was an American restaurant, because it wanted to have some intimacy. It you know, it was it was you know, kind of before the knock 'em dead walk into a room and gasp yeah, also, I school guess school of restaurant design.
0: Danny Meyer must have had a budget because, as you say in the book, Stasi, you would have liked this. He sent them to Italy to go eat at a bunch of nice looking restaurants. Yeah. It's
2: well, like, they hey. were they were going to Italy on their honeymoon, <laughs> and he just sent them to the places. No, he didn't. Say, he oh, didn't say okay.
0: That. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so, uh Nastasi and I actually uh, had. um So, you know, we were working on the Museum of Food and Drink. We we uh, we did a fundraiser. We had Michael Anthony do it. Remember, what we gave him no.
2: TV dinners. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. because you know what, he's a dad, and he has had to grow, cook for his kids.
0: He but he bought a bunch of those, you know, those like Swanson style. Again, I think Swanson might be the name might be back in in business. Uh, but for those of you that you know weren't alive back then, <laughs> uh, you they literally had these things. Do they, Joe? Do they still have these things? Do you know? Does anyone know? Jack, you're. Yeah, I've seen him in the store, but they don't have the. That was called literally the Swanson Hungry Man. Yeah, yeah, Hungry. I saw them in the store. And other it day. was a, yeah. uh, uh, it was like a a triangle shape pressed into aluminum foil. Right, and that's
2: exactly what. it Yeah, was.
0: it was like some sort of like space program. Like uh, the potatoes were wet and dry at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful description. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, and the. Uh, the overcooked the "quote unquote" Salisbury steak—they uh, were an abomination. Anyway, so he bought the uh, did uh, you know? Um, got amazing produce and did something very, but but served them in those trays, and it was uh, that's great. Yeah, that's it, perfect. It was uh, it was kind of cool. oh, another thing. So you uh, when you're talking about him, there's a couple of ingredients that weave their way in and out of the book a couple of times. So I'm going to bring them up. One of which, Jack uh, in Mexico City, has something to say about squash blossoms. make several appearances in, in the book. And uh, last week, I sent uh, Jack to my favorite squash blossom experience of all times. How was the squash blossom,
1: lady? So good. And it was, a, it was a scavenger hunt to get it. And you were so kind as to send me the exact coordinates from the photo you'd taken. And
0: you were able and to find it? And
1: there she was. Yeah. yeah. And where Same was star. this?
0: So disc- uh, so describe where, in, where in the Merced it is, Jack, because uh, my memory is old. Go.
1: I mean, just as you enter, basically, there's a whole row of sort of, you know, people preparing fresh hot foods, and it's it's hard to miss. But if you if you're you're looking at a map,
0: if you're looking at a map of the Merced Market, it's at the Merced Market in Mexico City. If you're looking at a map of the Merced, and North is which is enormous, right? But if 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 North is up on your map, you enter from the lower left side of the market, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So you enter from the lower left side of the market. And is uh, are there still piñata dealers at that entrance?
1: No, there uh. were not piñata dealers at that entrance. All mm. right, all right. Probably right. beach balls. Something. But there were still piñatas. You had, you had said there were no piñatas, but there were. Oh, no, Funny. what
0: I said was is that the pandemic was very tough on the piñata business. Yeah. You know? Okay. On, and it's, right. in, in, in people have been making piñatas for generations. It's tough on it. I'm not just talking about the garbage piñatas, like the idiot piñata. I'm talking about, like, real, like, clay pot piñatas, nice piñatas. Anyway.
1: Uh, I see, I see.
0: So you go in and then you hook a right and you go down and she's on the left. That's still accurate? Yep. Does she still have a contractor's trash bag full of squash blossoms?
1: No. There was not a contractor's bag. They were just sort of there with the rest of the ingredients. Although maybe when she replenishes, she breaks out the contractor bag.
0: (laughs) But there was there was it was copious amounts, right? Yeah,
2: that that munificent that's gorgeous. What an image.
0: And uh, I was saying, so sorry if you know, you heard me say this a couple of weeks ago, but I had someone translate for me as like, is this just like, am I just hitting this peak season? And she's like, no, we have this all the time. And I was like, oh my god! <sighs> and did she the same way? She just lightly hacks them up on the kamal, cooks them, shreds the shreds the cheese, and puts them on the tortilla. And then that is is there anything better than that? Did you have any? Have you had anything better than that recently?
1: <laughs> it was pretty good. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, it like, made me question a lot of the street meat at the meeting. It's like, well, squash blossom tacos are this good. How yeah, yeah, much? Why how, do anything else?
0: How much did it cost? Like nothing. It's <laughs> an abomination. Like
1: sixty yeah. cents, sixty cents each, or something. It's ridiculous.
0: I mean, I mean, how much does a one clamshell of squash blossoms cost at the at the market
2: nowadays? Yeah, four, four or five dollars. It's ridiculous. It's, it's it's half a dozen or yeah, ten of them.
0: Yeah, she would have put m- oh. more than that into one serving. It's just like uh, the other story I tell a lot, so sorry, Anastasia, is uh, when I went to uh, uh, Dakar and uh, gooseneck barnacles are free there. And so you're just like, Aah! crazy. Anyway, uh, all right, all right, so squash blossoms. So, so let's talk about the squash blossoms because it comes up several different times in, in the book. You grew them because you were also –
2: uh, I had a, I had a little garden, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. I, which I oh, because I was editor of Garden Design, yeah. but that wasn't why I grew them. It's just because I love them. And uh, Christopher Hersheimer, who I talk about in the book, <clears throat> who runs Canal House Station, which is a wonderful restaurant in Milford, New Jersey, um, was she was at my house, and we we were, she we just went out and picked up squash blossoms, and she told me the oar batter, which is simply. Half a cup of flour and half a cup of soda water.
0: Oh, wait, was that... But then someone else, you said, did a wine a wine and flour batter. Was that not for squash blossoms? Was that for something else? Like a well, half white wine? Well, maybe she did
2: that. Maybe it was half white wine. <laughs> that yeah.
0: might, I'm well, there's different half batters. white
2: wine and half fine uh, flour. Yeah.
0: I've never had... I I, be, I read an Italian book recently. I can't... The name escapes me. Old. And they had some uh, fried foods where the the batter was – liquid was predominantly wine. I've never tried it.
2: Well, it's just perfect. And I do sage leaves like that. I just – I do – you know, you can – I do uh, wild mushrooms like that. And and in a little pot, that was the other thing that she taught me. That's why she's one of my key kitchen whispers – not you know you'd think oh well let's do a frying pan so we can keep it shallow no keep it deep a small saucepan with enough oil to dip the the blossoms in and they'll cook all at once and it's perfect Anastasia loves
0: squash blossoms yep. you grow them you used to, used to. out of your window
2: mm-hmm.
0: do, you know what's weird which do you do you i uh, not all squash blossoms taste as good as the others for instance like the blossoms on pumpkins don't taste
2: they don't they're not as sweet yeah as zucchini blossoms so the ones that the
0: ones that they, do they have specific varieties that are better for the fruit if, that i find basically worthless or do they or, or do they uh, are, are all zucchini blossoms equally good or are there varieties whose blossoms are oh
2: i think there's probably not very much difference but uh, among zucchini squash blossoms
0: yeah pumpkin yeah. blossoms are not yeah. good
2: no yeah. they're they it's a different animal
0: yeah yeah, I remember when uh, right after my parents got divorced, my dad uh, moved into somebody's um, uh, house. He lived in their attic. You know what I mean? Well, it was an apartment. I mean, I mean he didn't like live in somebody. Anyway, the 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 mom there, she grew squash blossoms, and when I was a kid, that was the first time. And she would do it in in the batter and fry them. But because I was an American, she let me put syrup on them. So I <laughs> so I grew up with fried squash blossoms. Uh, like pancakes. maple syrup, like pancakes, <laughs> she's like, eh, it's American kids fine. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, that's where I learned. But I think most Americans, it's just too expensive for us to grow up liking them, unless you grow them, right? And then you have them in such when abundance. When you grow them, yeah. then
2: you have them, in, and it's not a luxury.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ooh, squash blossom. All right. The other one is that I feel like you, when you were younger, hated on rutabagas and only learned to like them later. I, I get did. that feel. Yeah,
2: and that was another Michael Anthony. It was they're just big clunkers, and then you realize. I mean, he there's a recipe in the book we we did after Gramercy called Via's for Vegetables," and he's just a vegetable head. He's just loves vegetables, and and he slices these things like silk thin, little thin. It never occurred to me to treat something as as beautiful as that. I mean, and he made a gratin out of it, which of course we did with. Potatoes, And I've done it with parsnips and I've done it with um, celery root. But, but rutabaga, well, it's lovely. I
0: mean, I love rutabaga. Of course, I worked for years with a Swede, so, you know, uh, yeah, but I, lo- I love rutabaga. Yeah. I can't make myself love parsnips.
2: Parsnips are, are uh, D- now David Thomas loves parsnips and he taught me about those. And he said, you have to remove the hard core center of them. Mm, I'll try it.
0: So and, like quarter and then lop out the middle middle section. Yep, yep, like you would a pineapple. Yep.
2: All right. Exactly. And because that they, they're they're chewy and not very flavorful. Yeah.
0: I mean, I always think of a parsnip
2: as a trash can carrot. No, they they have there's a sweetness. I right. do them. I mean, I'm, look, I try to tell my kids,
0: I'm like, uh, you know, try keep trying everything. Maybe if, if the other one that you you learned to like is persimmon. It took you a while, right? Yes, it I still did. have not.
2: I don't care about them. I don't hate them. I just don't care about them. You now care about them. I do. I do care about them. And I welcome them because when tomatoes are gone, it's almost half my my food vocabulary is, is when when the tomato season is over. I can't get myself to use, I use canned tomatoes, but I don't use tomatoes from the from the store.
0: Right, because they're trash. Yeah. Uh, Garbage, filth. Uh, did you, although I, d- have you learned to like the Campari tomatoes that have come out in the I've past tried. 15 years?
2: I've tried. It's the only one I use. I'll roast them when I, you know, when I'm getting desperate about April, or March or April, and I just ugh, can't stand not having tomatoes anymore. I I put little, I put herbs and garlic in them and roast them in the oven, and that's that gives, gives them a l- some flavor. Yeah. All right, so another tomato thing. You mentioned... Uh, and I've read it so
0: many times in my life and I've never done it because it just seems horrific to me. Taking a, a tomato, a ripe tomato to a box grater. Like what the heck? So that's Catalan. Yeah, but that,
2: what? The- Coleman taught me that. And what, what, what you do with it is you get this rich um, puree of, of flavorful tomatoes and you throw the skins away.
0: Oh, so it allows you to keep the skin on your side of it. So it's absolutely. Of, so it's a cheap way. So if you don't want to buy a tomato strainer, if you're not right. ma- making right. the sauce, right? Did you have a tomato strainer in the house, Joe, growing up? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're actually tomato strainers. People are not that expensive. They really aren't. Okay. If you own a KitchenAid, I know you're. You're kind of anti-equipment. In the, I mean, not anti-equipment. I'm learning my way around them, yeah. I mean, the impression I get is that you feel that, you know, if you need all that equipment, maybe you should have just spent more time learning to cook. Yeah,
2: that's exactly it. That's exactly it.
0: But I am a gearhead. I've always been a gearhead. I like equipment. But uh, tomato strainer, because this, again, I, I can't remember whether I said this on the air or whether this is what I'm writing in the book now, but like tomato skins taste bad. Yeah. They taste bad. Uh,
2: and so that what you're left with is a pile of grated tomato and the skin in your hand. You throw the skin away or in I, a compost. See this, I never
0: understood. Yeah. So now I now I understand the reason because I'm those, thinking all well, those Catalans. Yeah. Yeah. Because by the way, seeds don't taste bad; they just have no flavor. Mm-hmm. Skin tastes bad, actively bad. You know what I
2: mean? Uh, all right. So all right. They, they and you know they the the Spanish just rub that tomato paste on on bread or toast, and it's just all you need is breakfast. Yeah, the bread with tomato. I mean, I like it. I'm never like, again. I've
0: I've had it. I've had it in Barcelona several times. It's good. It's it doesn't it doesn't take me to a child. It doesn't take me to a place. No. A memory place.
2: Well, also their bread isn't like the bread that we love in other parts of Italy and France.
0: Yeah. Although, do you hate Tuscan bread as much as we do?
2: Oh, I, I don't. It has no salt. Yeah. How can he eat anything without salt?
0: Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know you know Jim Leahy from yeah. Sullivan's. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we've had him on the show a couple of times. He's great. Yeah. He's always good for a laugh. Uh, he'll he'll say insane things. Every time we have him on, we insult Tuscan bread. Right, Stas? Yeah. And every time, what does he say? He likes Tuscan bread. No. And then what does he say? No salt. No. What does he say? I
2: don't
0: know. He'll make us Tuscan bread with no salt and we're going to like it. Yeah. Has he ever done it?
2: You can go buy it at his place. He
0: sells Tuscan bread yeah. without salt? Yeah. No way. Yeah, he does. All right. You. I don't have any money. <laughs> I'm sure he will give you a loaf of he's the bread. He's never bret-
2: really there. I mean, he's I never there. I
0: see him there. at the farm. I see him really? at Union Square. Yeah. Ask him when you see him then. I don't think. You think he actually <laughs> makes... For instance, like, okay, Montreal bagels have no salt. When Montreal bagels came to New York, you know what they added to them? Salt. Salt. Because... We know better, right? No, I mean I,
2: I don't want to put it that way, but it's no, like I, I know what you mean. I, I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah.
0: Anyway, all right. Uh, you bring up uh, another person who we worked with at the museum, uh, Anita Lowe. Did you do? Have you
2: done a, bu- a book with her? Or I no? never have. She's my neighbor and she's my friend, and I love Anita. Hold like, on. We got a call. We'll talk about her in a minute. Caller, you're on the air.
1: Hi, this is Jacob calling from Des Moines, Iowa. Oh,
2: Iowa! I lived in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs>
1: But what, the, when did you live in Des Moines?
2: That's another story. Go ahead.
1: Sure, sure. And I, I apologize in advance for asking a question because I know you guys are uh, – it sounds like you're having such a lovely conversation. And unfortunately, uh, due to uh, my own uh, – what's the word? Uh, not not being on the ball about this. I, it's time sensitive, so I All just right, want right, to be right. sure I get this right. No, let's do it. Uh, so I'm doing a drag queen dinner. This Saturday, and because it's drag queen themed, I wanted to incorporate uh, cocaine—not uh, literally, but okay. <laughs> taking a cue from take, taking a cue from Philip Foss uh, of L. Ideas in Chicago. He does the the coconut lime powder. I want to do a coriander lemon powder and kind of basically make it taste like lemonade to uh, act as a palate cleanser between the main and dessert course.
0: But like uh, I mean, I but one- people aren't going to sniff it though, right?
1: No, I'm, I'm going to get some boba straws and cut them into, like, little things so that they can slurp it up kind of like a pixie stick.
0: Okay, okay. So what? Are the, what's the flavor base? Uh,
1: lemon and coriander powder. And so the, the reason I'm calling is because I want to make my own lemon oil, and I heard you mention in episodes past about making lemon-infused oil using an ISI, and I was curious if you had a, a particular uh, method slash recipe for that. And then I also wanted to confirm that, you know, if I'm going to be mixing— powdered sugar, coriander powder, uh and uh lemon acid powder into this. It's not going to kind of like mess up the texture too badly.
0: Well, okay.
1: So I I sat down with the drag queens for uh-huh. some reference points because I want this to look like a drag queen, you know, inspired menu and they uh eventually mentioned yeah, cocaine's a big thing, apparently. So
0: Cocaine, in, hell of a drug. Don't mind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're we're doing Okay, okay, okay. So so let me see if I got the parameters. Uh the, the the coriander we're talking seed right and i'll
1: probably grind grind it finely
0: yeah, I mean the problem, so it, with, problem so with coriander, like the problem with grinding coriander finally is the husks. The husks on coriander. So you, you're going to have to get some sort of a very fine strainer and then just take whatever dustings make it through the strainer. Fortunately for you, right. cori- coriander is very inexpensive. So save, yep. the, save the rest for your shaksuka. You like coriander in your shaksuka, right, Dorothy? I mean, who doesn't? Coriander and cumin, right? Need that. And you're a lover of pimentone. Which we could talk about that's been my kitchen crutch for the past. For the pandemic, I've been leaning very heavily on pimentone anyway. Okay, so uh, coriander and then the lemon instead of doing like an oleosaccharum, you I'm assuming you're using um, uh, Enzorbit tapioca maltodextrin. It sounds like you're going to powderize an oil. Is that my correct? That's correct. Okay, uh, so the, the the way that works is it's an extremely fluffy um. It's an extremely fluffy starch and the oil complexes. And then if there's minute amounts of liquid involved, then that will kind of pastify it a little bit. But you can just add more to get over it. Uh, I think you might be better off making like uh, an oleosaccharum and then uh, like decanting, pressing that stuff off and adding the tapioca maltodextrin to that rather than trying to get – once you have a, a a lemon oil, it's never going to be as pronounced as um, – as it would be if you just use the straight peels to make an oleo, uh, right?
1: And that's that's why I was gonna I was gonna dope it. I mean, are you talking straight lemon flavor, or are you talking like if if I want my my end result to be basically like lemonade, um, I was planning on adjusting all of the flavor of it with like powdered sugar and citric acid, malic acid, right? So, um,
0: well, lem- if it's lemon, it won't have malic; it'll just have the citric. But the the other right. the issue is is that um, um, citric acid crystals are that the ones that you buy, um, are, um, not powdery enough to go in with the rest of the stuff that you're doing. So you're going to need to blitz them, uh, right. just be aware that, um, that it then becomes you, you use a scale to measure it. Powders are very, I'll tell you a quick story. I wanted to make uh, popcorn salt for, you know, my kids and I, you know, just threw uh, a bunch of salt in my blender and walked away and made it into a powder. And then I tried to use my normal cook cook's hand on it, and it, uh, oh my, inedibly salty, inedibly salty. Oh, yeah, you know. What yeah, I mean? yeah. And yeah. I, I've
1: I've got I've got digital scales and micro digital scales. So like, if you've got specific uh, per, per percentages to throw at me, like I'm all about percentages and metric and stuff like that. So
0: I mean, it's weird. I've never. I mean, just, if you wanted to literally, be, you have to figure out like. You know, just remember lemon juice is about 6% acidity. So if you're thinking about it in terms of, like, how much, quote-unquote, lemon juice should I be consuming for this amount of powder, then you can kind of just do the math that way. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Is this helpful? It is. Uh, And I just want to confirm because I've only messed with uh, tap, malt, and Torbit once. um, And it was—is it—we did it— Oil into powder. So we were making like a pork powder. We would just take rendered lard, Mm. uh, throw it in the food processor, zip it up, and then drizzle in the fat. And they would use equal parts by weight. So if it was 100 grams of powder, it was 100 grams of fat that would go into it. And then season it. Is that the approximate? uh,
0: It's been so long, and it also depends depends on exactly the texture you want. You can get anywhere from like a runny paste to a fluffy powder. Uh, this is one of those things that you're just going to want to do, as we say, by eye until it's the texture you want.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what I was planning on doing. Um, but you said oleosaccharin would probably be a better bet I would as, try in terms it. of extracting lemon flavor?
0: I would try it. Otherwise, otherwise zest you know as many lemons as you can get a hold of and then put them into the oil and hit it in the ISI and let it infuse and you'll get it. But it's never going to be as strong. Another thing you could do, I and mean, you could just I mean, cheat and add a little bit of lemon oil to it. Little bit, little bit. I had, I,
1: I have some of that. I have some of that as well. I think it's like a lemon infused oil that I got from one of those, you know, spice stores. So they have all the infused olive oils and stuff like that. Oh, one of the Italian ones. I've those are the-
0: actually pretty decent, but they taste a lot like olive oil. And yeah, you know, you're not right. going to want it to taste like olive oil. Most of those, you know, I forget the name of the brand. There's like an old guy holding fruit on the front uh, that all I right. get at the Palos. But uh, they do an orange, they do a lemon, they, uh, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's not that's not lemonade. That's olive oil.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, good right. luck.
0: Let us know how it goes. Hey, listen, make sure no one as a joke snorts that. Seriously. Yeah.
1: No. I'm. I, I. No. I'm. I'm gonna make a. I specifically mentioned to the host of the party, like, hey, I'm gonna have a couple of minutes on the microphone to talk about this, right? Because I don't even think that they've they've put the uh, the palate cleanser like on the menu. That's gonna be a surprise thing. And so I'm gonna be sure to like walk people through it. But yeah, Philip Philip Foss has gone on record and saying you'd be amazed at what some people have done. <laughs> Like, to get poli- uh, well, politicians in there rubbing it on their gums and stuff right. like that. It's just like, yeah, oh that's, man, <laughs>
0: that's all fine, but it's just, uh, it's a, especially if when the powders are that fine and they're, I mean, inhaling like a very fine powder into your nose that's not soluble, like an acid, like you can right. have someone have a very violent reaction to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: no, yeah, yeah no. Yeah. I plan on being very, very clear about that. This isn't actually cocaine. This isn't meant to be snorted. Use your mouth. <laughs> this is a dinner. Not yeah. A, yeah, rub not it, a rub it, party. rub it
0: into your teeth. This is the cocaine that's left over when you're done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah. All right. Good luck right, with it. Cool. Let us know how. It, let it,
0: yeah, tweet me and let me know how it goes. We'll do. All right. Cool. So uh, Anita is your neighbor. Yeah. All right. And you are doing. So you want to talk about this farmer because I don't really know about this farmer.
2: Okay. The farmer is named Patty Gentry and she has a farm in. Uh, in Bellport, Long Island, she farms three acres of Isabella Rossellini's land, and she's an organic farmer, and she's an extraordinary person, and she's taught us a lot about things. And what the, Anita and she I have our old friends, because Patty used to be a chef, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I guess I talk about uh, a dinner that Anita made, a benefit dinner for Early Girl Farm, and how— um, you know, how fussy I thought um, Anita was being about her oysters. Uh, she was serving a first course of great gun oysters, which are grown right out uh, in in uh, Mauritius Bay, which is pretty, pretty great. And they're wonderful. And so she had she had all these helpers and I was one of them. And she, one of them, one of us was dropping little tiny um lemon curd and another one was was dropping little shizo leaves and another one was dropping little pickled um, shallots and whatever. And I thought, you know, I thought, this is really... And then I ate the soup. I ate them. I was fortunate enough to sit down and eat this this vichyssoise with the oysters in it. And I realized that Anita was cooking right down to the very second of presentation, that that bite... Of the oyster was so extraordinary. Yeah, so it's funny. Like um,
0: reading that section. Uh, by the way, she's also great. She's another one of those like people that's just a great person. But uh, I've worked with her at the you know at the mu- at the museum on on these kind of events. And remember, when we used to do events all the time, stars. Yeah. And what I like, one of the things I like is that moment where. And by the way, I should add for people who are gonna. Read the, read the book, It's one of the, another one of the threads that weaves through it is uh, whether you think in terms of platters or plates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so when you're serving a bunch of people and you're not going to do family-style service, there's this moment where you line up all of the plates and then everybody has a different thing and they all have to be assembled in a very short amount of time. And it's one of those things where you get to see chefs everyone's kind of busting each other's chops. Everyone's kind of like, but everyone's very focused and fast, you know what I mean? Super focused. everybody chips in and like everyone kind of like, if you don't chip in, people are like, who's that idiot? Mm -hmm. Who's that jerk? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I really, I don't know, it just, I have such fond memories. So I don't even think about, it wouldn't even come to my mind for it being like fussy because in my mind, it's like obviously every plate has to look the same because everyone's paid the same amount to be at this event. You know what I mean? And it's just like, doot, 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 doot. Doo, doo. And then when you get at the end and you're like, I'm running out of charge. Right. Ch- <laughs> you know, because like the old, yeah, yeah, no. It's, so like it's, it's like, uh, that's the one, that's one of the things I miss about um, those kind of, uh, those kind of things. All right. I'm being told that we have very little time. Uh, so also a lot of Marcella Hazan, you know, I never met her. She really smoked a lot, huh? You You talk oh, yeah. a lot about her like a smoker's voice. She did like, yeah, a lot of smoking. She did. She did. She really is good at she as good a cook as uh, we... Uh...
2: You know, she was a home cook. She was a home cook. She just made the food, and it always was delicious. She was not a show-off. She was simply, she went in the kitchen, she knew her ingredients because she was so smart. She had two advanced degrees. She, her mind was going all the time. And she wanted people to understand about flavor and about presentation. And one of the things I learned when I was doing research is is how much Marcella herself had to learn growing up on the Adriatic. Well, she didn't know Roman food. She didn't know Venetian food. She didn't know Na- n- n- the food of Naples. She she had to learn all that. She went to Milan and lived there with her husband, and she learned about the great market there called Peck. I mean, she, oh, Peck is she, amazing. she had to learn Peck. the things kind of the way we did. And she says that Italy is simply a series of different cuisines based on the ingredients and that that those are the things you have reverence toward. And, and she was no nonsense. Yeah, and I didn't realize... That her husband
0: was like a, a promoter for her. It's kind of like a, it's an inverse of the trope that we're used to, which I thought was kind of cool. Like her husband. Yeah.
2: Well, he he was a Harvard-educated Italian American, and he would write her books from her Italian that she wrote on uh, legal pads. Well, you said her yeah, her books in Italian she wrote straight. She wrote straight, and then Victor would kind of have his way with them, so they're a little fussier. In print, then they, then Marcella would have had them because she says things like, well, if you cut, you chop too much, you brown it a little more. If you chopped a little, you brown it a little less.
0: Yeah. She seems salty in a good way yeah. in the book. Yeah. I wonder what, like, uh, 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 all right. All right. All right. Well, so I'm out of time. Can I get, listen, Bill with, Bill has a shag bark hickory question. Don't bake the shag, but don't bake the, uh don't bake the bark. I don't care what anyone on YouTube says. You're going to boil the Boil the bark. Don't bake it. Shag bark, hickory uh, bark. It, it's wood. It's already been baked. You're not going to toast it to make it toasted. It's not vanilla. To, please don't don't bake it. Just wash it. If you have a vacuum machine, infuse liquid into it uh, in the va- you know pressure infuse into it just to make your life easy. If not, don't don't. Don't sweat it. Make the pieces small. That's the best thing. Make the pieces of the bark small. Shoot for a fifty brick syrup. Miguel, you have you seen these new graphite cord uh all-clad pans? Yeah. All cl- yeah. Are they any good? Yeah, I don't I haven't used one. I've seen them. Listen, Miguel, I'm sure they're great. People like them. Don't believe anyone who compares them to cast iron. That's not a valid uh thing because cast iron's not about fast heat conduction and it's the heaviest pan. It's it's not apples to apples. Uh most people don't need a pan that is the greatest conductor of all time. Aluminum is a good enough conductor of heat for 99, 9% of all the stuff that we do. If you like fancy pans and or if weight is a primary concern, then I'd say go for the, the, the graphite. If weight is not a primary concern and you don't need to have the fanciest new pans, I wouldn't bother – if you're a neat freak, here's the thing people don't worry about. The rivets, that's the part of the pan that's going to piss you off is the rivets because you can't get them clean. Am I right about this? Absolutely. Rivets, baby. Uh, <laughs> Alexander, we're still working on the spins all. We don't know when we're going to get it. Okay. Uh, one last thing. I know I know we're late. Sorry, Joe. Uh, Micah wants to, Micah's going to go camping, right? Uh, and so Micah wants to know, and I thought maybe Dorothy, since, you know, you've dealt with people who've done a lot of straight, including you do a, a lobster bake in uh, yeah. Long Island. Yeah hard to get right right you you say aren't people buttheads when they're at your like they're making comments that oh should we order pizza (laughs) people are such jerks people are such jerks okay this is what uh he writes i don't think i'll have time to call on but i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on large format meats to cook at a campsite with minimal equipment a pig roasting setup is a bit too uh much overhead unfortunately how about burying Well, how about burying
2: though yeah do you like burying have you ever have you ever had a good like uh Earth and roasted I don't, what pig. What do you control, though? I mean, the the question is: Do you make it about that experience? And if you do, then you better research it and figure it out and 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 do it right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, let me let me let me just I'll leave I'll leave with this because I know we're gonna. Uh, if you make it about the experience, then it doesn't really
2: matter if it's the best piece. That's exactly thing. right.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. right. All right. Uh, so, Dorothy, thanks so much for uh, coming on. I had a great time. The book, which you should go buy, is The Kitchen Whispers. It came out this week. Yeah. This week. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you. know, and like you say, maybe it's the last one you do on your own because, man, doesn't it suck to write a book?
2: <laughs> Not fun. <laughs> Not well, fun. Well, it it's fun when it's over. Yes, it is. <laughs>
0: uh, All right. Thanks so much. Cooking Issues.